Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Would you be surprised if I told you there is a nonprofit in Louisville that is the largest lineage organization in the United States located on Main Street in downtown Louisville? You might also be surprised to learn it has uh, the designation of being the national headquarters of SAR. Now, I'm going to pause there and let you think about SAR. S-A-R? What is S-A-R? Sons of the American Revolution, with over 37,000 members and a number of state societies uh, in all 50 states and 500, over 500 local chapters. And the uh, executive director joining us today on Think Humanities is Todd Bale. Todd, what a... um, a nice introduction, if I may say so myself. You must be very, very proud of this organization. Very proud. We're not the largest. I think, you know, obviously, like DAR probably has three times the members, but we may be the oldest. We beat them in, uh, in inception by a year. So we've been around since 1889. But I appreciate the introduction. I think, uh, like most people, I didn't know a lot about SAR when I first interviewed for the job. I had to go and research on Wikipedia and do my own research on my own lineage to find more about it. But it's one of those things, the more you dive into it, the more you learn, the more you appreciate it. It's a, it's a, an impeccable organization, the great lineage, a congressional charter, 16 former presidents, 35 congressional medal of honor winners, every walk of life, uh, obviously international headquarters. We do have a handful of uh, societies abroad. So I think it's a, it's an amazing organization probably the best kept secret. If you ask someone in Louisville about, SAR, international headquarters have been in Louisville since 1971. I would guarantee 99 out of 100 or more has never heard of it, right? Well, it's amazing. Uh, in fact, I'm going to have to put myself into that category because and <laughs> uh been in Louisville um, a lot, been a, a, a Kentuckian all my life, just about, except for a few years out, but certainly for the last um, many, many years. And visiting uh, Main Street uh, up and down and being right next door uh, or -hmm. close by to the Frasier, one day I just happened to kind of wander in there. I do know someone now who is uh, who's a a bona fide member and a a very uh, loyal um, son of the American Revolution. And he also told me a little bit about it, but I just kind of wandered in and, and was amazed and this kind of led me to uh, looking uh, you up and and the organization, and I think people will be amazed uh, with that. So let's just kind of uh, begin at the beginning, and that takes us back uh, hundreds of years. Uh, Todd, uh, when did it first um, form, and 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 just tell us about the uh, the uh, the genesis of um, the Sons of the American Revolution and and uh, how it grew out of the American Revolution and what was happening at that time of uh, in our in our 
United States and British history and uh, a little bit of background before we get into the modern day? I think there's interesting parallels. You think about how things are divided now with partisan politics and ideologies. 89 is, 1889 is 24 years after the Civil War. So still very separated, a lot of folks. And so uh, originally our members were part of the SOR. It's still around. It's the Sons of the Revo Revolution who required military service. It was very centralized in the New York area. And so I think centralization and concentrated oversight wasn't going to fly with folks who were descendants of revolutionaries. And so it began to spread out from there. And so it kind of grew from society to society. Really, we're the National Society of Sons of the American Revolution. We really were a federation of state societies or individual societies, if you include the European piece. So it's kind of been uh, over time, it's kind of grown and evolved. It began with one professional staff person, one executive director, probably part-time or volunteer. Today, we have 26 uh, full-time professionals and a multi-million dollar budget. And, um, we're, you know, there's we're, we're social media to worry about and things that weren't around 134 years ago. So it's evolved over time. And uh, it's, you know, it's got some very distinguished former members. Go to our Wikipedia page, you'll see the lineup beyond all the presidents, Congressional Medal of Honor winners. I mean, they're modern guys. James Woods is a huge advocate of the, the actor, Jeff Daniels. Travis Tritt recently joined. Uh, there's sports figures in there, race car drivers and baseball pitchers. And so it's just a very neat society. It's been under the radar for decades. And our job is to, to elevate the awareness. I'm sure there are Kentuckians uh, of note, uh, not just the average Kentuckian, but maybe some that uh, have uh, held office or that uh, have uh, maybe gone outside the state. Uh, and you don't have to name them all, but I would imagine that there are a number of Kentuckians of some prominence that are also members. We have a society here uh, in the state of Kentucky. I'm a member of that. I'm, I'm an ASAR member and belong to that society. Uh, there are politicians involved in that. In my own line, when I came through and did my own research, my family got here in 1792 from the Jersey area. And uh, in that line was prominent preachers, physicians, Kentucky senator. And so, um, you know, every state's going to have its own story of evolution. Uh, and the addition of additional members. But um, we do have some some prominent folks uh, involved. And I think Mitch McConnell at some point was a member of the SAR, not to get into partisan politics. There's some local folks now that are involved in it, state legislation uh, that, are, that are current members. So um, it's a good cross-section. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be rich to join here. Uh, if you can pay your dues and you qualify your lineage, then we're going to accept you. What were the originators of um, uh, the Sons? Uh, what was their intent in forming uh, the organization uh, way back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s? At that point, you probably still had original sons. I mean, one generation removed or a grandson removed from those patriots who fought in World War for independence. Really, it was about just remembering and never forgetting. And that's still the, the torch we carry today is a responsibility to make sure people are fully informed the sacrifices that were made to guarantee our liberty and freedoms today. And just that we don't lose sight of the charter and documents and ideas that formed the country. Is that something that, um, that they began to preserve at the time and knew how uh, one day we hold them sacred and uh, precious um, uh, documents did, did they realize uh, at that time that uh, 
they were um, would someday be the the documents that we uh, adhere to and and so honor. Yeah, I don't think it envisioned that back in you know in 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 that in that time period. But we have documents here from the 18th uh, century and beyond, and artifacts. We have our own collection of artifacts and a safe we're waiting to display once our museum's completed that we're going to put on display too. So I think at the time, they just wanted to make sure just to protect and to uh, perpetuate the knowledge of the sacrifices, the heroes and patriots, the charter governing documents of the country. And we got congressional charter during the Teddy Roosevelt era, I think, and then we kind of sprung out from there. Yeah, that's uh, it took, um, uh, what, up until... Uh, 19, what was the date in, um, in the night, uh, 19, what was it when Congress recognized? I'm going to say this and about 5,000 members will be mad. I think it's, it's around 1912. So, uh, you mentioned about, uh, uh, Googling and doing research and that sort of thing. And you, you, uh, kind of touched on the museum and that's one of the things that, that, uh, you're working on for 2027, which gives you plenty of time, we hope, uh, to raise the money and and put that together. Um, tell us about what your your future plans for the genealogical research and and museum piece of the headquarters that you're uh, looking forward to. So the the genealogical library research library is complete. It's been done now for a few years, and it's an amazing resource that you can walk in off the street, pay five dollars, and use it. You can get an annual membership, which is called Friends of the Library, for $25 and have access the whole year. And there's some online tools and access points, the Patriot Research System, the PRS, some things you can access to be a part of that. But it's a great resource that no one knows about. When I interviewed for the job, I came down and all I knew was it was across the giant back. But once you get inside there, you just see the volumes and volumes of books that uh, they're not even all about the colonial period. They're often about what happened with the Quakers, uh, what happened with the, the original pilgrims. They're from different states, they're different time periods. And so it's a great historical library and a great jewel right here, a little that not many folks know about or utilize. Do Are, are there librarians or researchers there, assistants who can point you in the right direction? There are uh, three full-time staff in that area. Sherry Daniels is the is director of that library. She's an amazing professional. She's a former professional genealogist. She's worked at Kentucky Historical Society, so they're highly competent and capable. And anyone who wants to begin the journey, I mean, they'll certainly help you start it. And everyone should have that journey. And so walk me through, um, or if you will, paint us a picture of how you walked in off the street. Of course, you might have at that time being walking in for a job interview, but let's just say it's it's anyone, uh, a man or woman, uh, male or female, or child or high school uh, student researcher. Uh, what would they do uh, besides pay their five dollars? What what do they find in the library? Uh, what does uh, one of the assistants help them with? What what are they? What would one be looking for, and, and what would they possibly find? So, I mean, I'll just tell you my own, own experience, right? So I started out, I, I knew about three, maybe four generations of oral family history, like most of us. I knew my people came from Hart County, far back as great-grandparents. And so I brought all the information I knew, parents' names, grandparents' names. Uh, if I had any, if I had my birth certificate, I, I brought that, my, my general ID information. And we began a journey, we connecting dots on that. So 
what I found out in my own research through that was I went all the way back to New Jersey. I mean, it, 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 they came here in 1796. Uh, they got to Jersey. Uh, Johann Heinrich Beil, uh, a German immigrant, got to Jersey in 1751 and then uh came into Philadelphia Harbor, meandered across to Suffolk uh, County there in Jersey and uh, took up shop doing what he knew. I mean, bio is a word for hatchet in, in German. He came down through Rotterdam, got on a boat. He was an indentured servant. He paid his freight and came and he just squatted. I mean, it's crazy that in that time there still was open property to be had in Jersey just by pitching your tent, right? So uh, that's Rob again and all the way back to that group. So if you go now, they, they migrate. Uh, he has a son named Jacob. Uh, Jacob passed on a thousand acres in Louisville in, in that time period in, back in 1790s to go down to West Little Brush Creek, which is actually uh, Green County. And so Green County, at some point, the descendants move over next door to Hard County. Then that leads, at that point, my grandfather comes to Louisville, you know, way back in the 1920s. So it's, it's a cool story and everyone should know their story. Uh, the figures that played in it to kind of get you to this point where you are right now. And our responsibility is to educate my children on the whole story and lineage, right? How much of that did you do yourself or how much of that was, uh, were you aided by an assistant? Well, I I cheated. I had staff genealogists help me, but um, they would go through the same process if you applied at SAR. Uh, And then the library staff will direct you on a general search. But really, a lot of, of deeper research goes into a membership application because they have to verify all those documents and connect the dots through death certificates, birth certificates, wills. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, you know, newspaper articles, it's tax records, census rolls that they're going to use to verify those things. So that, that's pretty extensive. But general person just trying to find, connect dots, the staff can help them do that far back as you want to go. And they go back at least, well, I mean, I don't know, yours yours were back in the 1700s, middle 1700s. Did they go back even farther than that for some families? Well, we're going to take you back to really our period, which is kind of 1764-ish into the French-Indian War. Uh, whoever that person was in our window, 1764 to 1783 is kind of what we're looking at. And you can go back far as you want. I mean, at some point, that all leads back to Europe for most folks. Um, so that's where my journey started was around 1751 with, mm-hmm. with the original, uh, uh, patriot of origin. So what's the difference in what you house there, what your collection has versus, uh, what one might find at a local library or even the Kentucky historical society? I think it's very similar. I mean, I think if, you know, if KHS is going to help you, that would be great. Uh, I don't know how, how centralized geographically their library and holdings are, if it's just about Kentucky. Like my journey began on the East Coast in Jersey, and most folks will start New York Harbor, Philadelphia, point of entry, isn't going to be Kentucky. I mean, even in the, in the Revolutionary War, the theater was very small, population was limited in this area. I mean, the, some of the battles, the, the Battle of Blue Licks, which we celebrate in 1782, only had maybe 400 combatants, right? Maybe 500 at most. So everyone will start kind of on the East Coast. And so it depends on how big their collection is, where their records come from. The great news is today, I mean, in the era of of digital research, I mean, a lot of things are open to you now that weren't open to you uh, decades before. So 
Now, I know you're not a, a, a trained historian by, by scholarship, right. but you certainly uh, are an amateur and you've looked into your own uh, family and probably many other families. You just mentioned the Battle of Blue Licks. A lot of people in Kentucky and some who are familiar with uh, our Kentucky humanities uh, work, uh, our story and uh, telling Kentucky stories, our podcast, which we've talked about the Battle of Blue Licks before, our Think History segments, too, um, are familiar with uh, that incursion. Um, Tell us uh, what you know about that being uh, one of the last battles of the revolution and, and, and how that played such an important part. And it happened right here in Kentucky. Uh, certainly was on the tail end, probably the last real formal battle of the American revolution. At least in the Western theater, and you're talking maybe 50 loyalists and uh, two, 300 uh, native American braves or warriors versus George Rogers Clark, 182 militia. So not, not a huge scale. To look at some other battles in the American Revolution, but very important for us to, uh, at that point, uh, Hamilton was coming out of Detroit trying to contain and control this vast area of the Ohio River Valley, and uh, they were still it was still under contest contestation. So important win for us. I mean, uh, that was probably the end of it, and then they signed the treaty in 1783. It's over. People forget that. You know, I always think the American Revolutionary War. We, we read textbooks in school. You know, it's it's the it's Yorktown. It's the world turned upside down. Stack the swords. And it's over. There's two more years of activity, or close to two more years, in the Western Theater. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I really appreciate that the museum will have a section around the Western Theater and the um, and the works of George Rogers Clark. I mean, what he did for us in the area. Yeah. Well, at that time too, uh, early on, um, uh, Fort Herod in Harrodsburg. Um, uh, Brian uh, Station Brian and all of that was was a, a you know an active part of uh, of travel and and skirmish and and uh, battles. Um, Todd, uh, when we come back uh, after we hear a word from our underwriter, I want you to talk a little bit more about not just the the historical aspects of um, of uh, SAR, uh, but your education and outreach programs uh, that you. Uh, conduct. So uh, I am talking to Todd Bale, who's the executive director of the Sons of American Revolution uh, Genealogical uh, Library and Museum. What is the official title? Give me the official title. Well, it's kind of three parts. There's international headquarters here, which is this uh, admin support staff. There is a genealogical research library, and there is a future forthcoming education center and museum. So if we say the international headquarters of the Sons of the American Revolution that, that pretty much captures it. And uh, the address on Main Street in Louisville, right next to the Fraser Museum? 809 West Main. 809, close to the uh, uh, the, the famous baseball bat that overlooks uh, all of Louisville, right across. Uh, so it's, it's real handy and real close by for people who are uh, looking uh, for a lot of things. And we'll talk more about that with uh, Todd Bale right after this word from our good friends at Spalding University. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA program, creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester, followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. 
Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Todd Bales, our guest today on Think Humanities, uh, and uh, we've, we're talking about the uh, research and genealogical library that's available at the international headquarters of the Sons of the American Revolution, and also uh, a forthcoming in a couple of years, uh, wonderful, uh, the the rendition, uh, by the way, of the video that, that uh, Todd uh, sent me. Is that available to the public to see, by the way? Is that on your website? It is. If you go on to the SAR.org website under the uh, foundation portion, which is the fundraising arm side of it, you can find a link to that YouTube video. Terrific uh, video, uh, the interactivity of it. I'm sure it's going to change uh, even before you open in 2027. But wow, uh, if people can take a look at that and walk through, uh, they're going to uh, really be entertained and and learn something. And But that kind of leads me into the education aspect of this. Uh, you're not just a library. Uh, you're not just going to be a museum. Uh, you do so much more in the outreach and education area. So tell us a little bit about that. I really love the fact that we do supply curriculum uh, for history teachers around the country, not just here in Jefferson County or Bullitt County, but I mean, Oldham County, but around the country can access those things. And those keyholes to history, which are these great little uh, vignettes that are with uh, famous authors around different parts of the colonial area period. And those are great assets and tools. And then we, we recognize we have some scholarship competitions where, uh, you know, high school seniors will orate about um, what are particular topics around the, the Constitution or Declaration of Independence or the, the, the vital part of why we fought a war for independence. And then last time I saw $18,000 of scholarship money was given out to those seniors. And then they support the Eagle Scouts program, ROTC, junior ROTC in high school. Those are things we recognize. And so. I really enjoy that part. And then, you know, Rayanne uh, and her staff and Jacob will go out and uh, present to groups here in the community and kind of give them a sample of what life was like, you know, in the 17, uh, 1770s. And then here we'll put on some displays. Folks will come in uh, that are involved maybe in their color guards here locally. And we'll talk about life in a Continental Army camp. And they're, you know, talking about how people ate at night, and how they cooked their food, and how they, uh, you know, they, they, molded their own musket balls right so it's just it's all interesting i tell you what i i you know i i came from a military history background and you know uh agincourt antietam the battle of the bulls battle of baghdad and i knew most of the major talking points from that period i've just been overwhelmed how little i know about the colonial period and i learned things every day about new theaters so i went on down in, in east and west florida and, and it's additional theater that we don't know about don't talk about but a huge, uh, a huge battles that were fought in Pensacola, Mobile, and so I think the the more you dive in, just the more curiosity you have, and, and the more you learn. So it's been a great experience for me. You um, do you already have some collected pieces, some museum pieces that are on display, or are you waiting until the the museum opens? Now we do have some things on display. We have most of our things still in the vault. And we have enough probably to supply our own museum several times over. And I think there's maybe, and boy, Mazak may kill me for saying this, maybe 400, 500 pieces that we currently have in our vault. And so we're, we're excited to get those out and display them. And of course, we need a venue to do that. So, uh, and it's it's interesting stuff. I mean, there's uh, no ancient, not ancient, but uh, manuscripts from the era uh, 
poems ever written, letters ever written, newspaper articles, uh, to, you know, Brown Best, Bessie Muskets, to, you know, Kentucky Long Rifles. I mean, it's the whole spectrum of things we have to offer and put on display once the museum is done. Are those items, um, are they available to the public maybe under special conditions now, or uh, will it be a waiting period until they're on display? You know, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I've only been here eight months. I'm not entirely sure how our policy works on loaning pieces and that kind of deal. There's a great um, selections from the collection, which I call kind of Artifacts with Zach. It's a great YouTube uh, video that's on our website where he brings out individual pieces and explains the origins and how they were utilized, how we came to have those. Uh, so that's a really an interesting uh, educational piece if people want to get that from our website. What do you think the, um, you, you mentioned uh, at the very beginning about this, uh, this moment in, in time, this moment in history and uh, the divisiveness that's going on and that it certainly was uh, going on uh, 250 years ago. Um, uh, we sometimes forget that. Uh, that that's why history is so important. But what would you like for whether they're school children uh, or whether they're adults that come through the museum or see a, uh, a lecture or hear you out in, in public uh, to take away from the, the international headquarters? Uh, what is the, uh, the main message that you want people not to just leave them with the fact that uh, Louisville, uh, Kentucky, is the international headquarters uh, for the Sons of the American Revolution, uh, that in 2027 there's going to be this uh, impressive, uh, incredible museum of, of history and artifacts, which is probably, uh, I would imagine, I'm trying to think now, other than the Kentucky Historical Society, uh, the Fraser does such a great job. Uh, there are not too many other places where you're going to be able to go and, and really see that story told. Um, so there are going to be those kinds of things. What else do you want people to, to take away from visiting SAR? You know, a profound moment for me was I listening at the State Society in Ohio, my teacher. She's teacher of the year, amazing history teacher. And she said only 20 percent of the kids were proficient in American history. And so I think, you know, in the grand scope of global history, we're a young nation. I mean, Greece, China, we're not five, six thousand years old. We're not the Eastern and Western Roman Empire. We're 250 years and we're already down to 20 percent. Right. Competency and remembering. Right. This this period of our country of only 250 years. So I think it's important for that. And two, to connect back to the, the governing documents of the country. I mean, this whole thing around today, around equality, that you have these inalienable rights that God has given you, not the government or a king or anybody else. You were, you were born with this as an American, or you received this when you became an American. I mean, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, these, these things that you should be guaranteed. That all comes from these charter and documents, right? I mean, everything, everything built today, all egalitarian legislation, whether it's suffrage, it's civil rights, it's ADA, this thing about equality comes from those ideas that may not have been realized right away. It's taken us, you know, two centuries and we're still going. But the idea that, you know, you have you have a rights to equality, right? That comes from these documents. And I think we've lost a lot of that. And then we get in fights over, you know, who's right, who's wrong. Uh, this is a good time to come back together as a nation and really focus on we live in a great country. We have freedoms. I mean, we have liberty. 
Does everyone have the same level of justice? No, but there's aspirations to give everyone justice, right? So it's just a great window of time to kind of put aside the things that we fight about and really circle around what we have in common. We, we benefit from living in a great country. There was tremendous sacrifices made to give us this. Understand these, I mean, the guys in 1776 risked hanging by the neck, losing every piece of ounce of property they had, every possession taken away and impounded, and their families living in poverty to sign a declaration of independence that we still enjoy in two and a half centuries late. And that's a great story about America. It's, 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 it's unique. It's ours. We own it. And it's a fabulous story. And we got to tell it. Well, you uh, uh, say that very well, uh, and it's uh, certainly true. The uh, the forefathers uh, and and the foremothers uh, certainly uh, knew what they were doing. And um, at the time, uh, we mentioned this earlier in the conversation. Uh, they might not have known uh, what uh, they were creating, but they certainly knew the importance of the words that they scratched on parchment uh, with their. A quill and ink, and uh, look what it has led to us today. Um, and I'm talking about the the positive aspects of it, and not uh, the divisiveness or the negative uh, problems that have grown out of that. But again, that's America too. That's uh, right. uh, giving us that's the right freedoms. to right exactly giving us the right to to uh, agree to disagree. And uh, I hope that people will take advantage uh, before 2027 and before the museum is open uh, to visit uh, SAR. What are your uh, Openings and closings. Are you open all the time? Uh, you know, we're open most days uh, around 830 to five o'clock. Now, we obviously close for all the holidays and we have some additional days, you know, Arms Forces days, Flag Day. Those are big days for us um, beyond Fourth of July, Memorial Day, uh, Christmas, New Year's. And so for the most part, we're here Monday to Friday, uh, every third Saturday. I think the library is open. You can check our website for those uh, those hours of operation. But I'm encouraging people. I mean, I don't know how many international headquarters there are in Louisville. I think maybe the Presbyterians have one. But I mean, it's it's a great asset here. No one knows about a resource. And uh, I do hope to change that. Yeah. Well, Todd uh, Vail, uh, thanks very much uh, for being with us. Todd is the executive director at the International Headquarters of the Sons of the American Revolution, located uh, in downtown Louisville on uh, on Main Street. And uh, uh, he's encouraging everyone to stop by if they haven't. And uh, just to visit around a little bit and let him uh, or one of the staff members tell you about not only what's there now, but what's uh, coming up in the future. And uh, Todd, once again, thanks for sharing your time with us uh, this afternoon. Hey, thanks for having us, Bill. God bless America. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.